This is um, Jeff Nyquist doing the podcast for jrnyquist.com for uh, Tuesday, uh, January 27th, 2009. And with me is Jay Adams. He's been a contributor to the forum at thefinalphase.com and he runs the spiritoftruth.org site. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jay. Hello, Jeff. How are you? Pretty good. We've corresponded over the internet for years and years. I think going we back were, to we were almost the originals uh, in terms of this uh, perspective of a Soviet grand deception. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you think were... I've been in touch with you since the early 1990s or thereabouts. Yeah, that's right. You were a graduate student at the time in economics, that's right. as I recall. Um, yeah, I. Um, I've been looking at this for many years, and of course I was working on my book at the time when we ran across on the internet. I think you were one of the first people to read a sort of preliminary manuscript, uh, preliminary version of my book. That's right. Um, and of course uh, that was in 94, I think, 93 or 94, when I had the manuscript in very rough form. Um and, of course, we've seen a lot of events transpire since then. And the thing that intrigued me about some of the things you were talking about, a uh, economic collapse, a financial crash uh, based on the uh, the notion that uh, that there are these periodic collapses that have to do with uh, uh, alternation of optimism and pessimism in the population. And, of course, this is, intrigues me because it, it runs right along with Soviet strategy. Soviet grand strategy has always been based on the notion that there is going to be this great uh, economic crisis that's going to hit the West and that this is the moment to press home the revolution, the global revolution, where um, socialism, Soviet socialism, will overtake the planet. And, of course, for the few of us that understand that the collapse of communism was uh, orchestrated by the KGB in Russia as part of a long-range strategy, an idea that is considered paranoid and kooky by the mainstream in this country, but is but is affirmed by documents taken out of Russia by Vladimir Bukovsky and is affirmed by the testimony of defectors, uh, uh, you know, all the way from from the most recent defector, uh, Sergei uh, Tretyakov, to Alex, uh, to uh, uh, Alexander, Alexander Levinenko, who was assassinated in London, who was revealing the fact that the KGB was orchestrating the, the terrorist campaign of Al-Qaeda and that 9-11 was actually uh, probably a coordinated event by the KGB, that Ayman al-Zawari is an agent, a long-time agent of the KGB, and that uh, that uh, we also have Anatoly Galitsyn, the first to bring this whole thing up uh, in his 1984 book, uh, New Lies for Old, in which he predicted the fake collapse of communism orchestrated by the KGB as a deception strategy for the West to put its guard down so that Russia could get the technology and rearm and and reassert itself in the third world and turn the tables on the United States during the period of a future uh, economic uh, uh, crash. Uh, and here we are. Uh, all of this Correct. is fulfilled, and there doesn't seem to be any way to ignite any kind of awareness on the part of Americans or West Europeans. And, and, and that's a key point I'd like to address. Um, when I was learning long wave theory, and these are waves of history, what, basically how they play out is there swings between extremes of mass optimism and mass pessimism between peaks and troughs. And in terms of the Elliott Wave Principle, uh, which 
was popularized by a guy named Robert Prechter, who I correspond with almost daily and have since the uh, late 1980s. Um, and you can get more information on ElliotWave.com in terms of uh, his work. But the general idea is that these wave patterns of history are swings between extremes of collective optimism and collective pessimism, uh, if you will, um, irrational optimism and irrational pessimism. And in the context of the of the principle, the wave structure is such that it's um, it's based upon fractals, but it's waves within waves within waves, or cycles within cycles within cycles. So you have very small cycles, you have medium scale cycles, you have very large scale cycles. And what we've been approaching, based upon historical patterns and particularly um, time series of stock prices, is we've been working towards what we've called the grand supercycle peak. And basically, the grand supercycle peak marks the peak of Western civilization. It really started around the uh, late 1700s with the birth of America as a, as a nation. So, if you will, it marks the peak of American hegemony and power in the world. And <clears throat> this peak has been occurring really since the um, uh, since we reached um, over Dow 10,000 in the year 2000. So it's really it's been a, a process that's taken like the past 10 years. And we've now, of course, we've reversed. It has become apparent to everybody. But what's critical to understand is that as you, um, in climbing to the top, what you would look in terms of the collective beliefs and the collective sentiment of society would be irrationally optimistic. So, you know, you can think of that in terms of like the tech bubble and the way that, you know, people believe that Yahoo was worth $200 a share, et cetera, et cetera. It was completely irrational optimism. But it's broader than that. It, it goes outside of just stock market and, and the economy. And so everything that fed into that optimism also included, you know, the boom in housing and these sort of factors, but also the collapse of communism and the collapse of, a, of, a, of a, uh, the seeming uh, threat of totalitarianism. And so, if you will, everything that we're, we've been discussing with regard to what the Soviets are up to, what Russia's been up to for the past 20 years, it should be obvious. It, it does not take a rocket scientist to examine the views of Galitzin, who had a 94% accuracy rate in predicting the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, in, in, in reading the works like Soviet Strategy for Nuclear War and um, Alexander Litvinenko's Allegations uh, and all the other stuff that should be very clear what's going on. Mm -hmm. But yet somehow, as a collective society, in terms of collective beliefs, that idea is considered preposterous. Mm -hmm. Whereas, in reality, what's preposterous is what everybody in society believes. And yeah. what I'm saying is the Elliott Wave principle, the, the, these patterns of history, wave patterns of history, would indicate to us to look for collective beliefs and expectations to be irrational. So, in a sense, we might we, we are very unpopular voices, but what we're saying is absolutely true. It's just that society as a whole, at the current juncture, is delusional. 
Mm-hmm. And, and that's by definition. And let me say, I cover this in my book, is that we have a cult of obligatory economic optimism. That is, you have to be economically optimistic to invest your money, to create economic mm-hmm. progress. So suddenly it became, you know, you know, you don't want to be negative on the economy because that will cause the economy to go down. So everyone has to be positive. And, of course, so nobody can distrust the collapse of the Soviet Union. Nobody can distrust Yeltsin or Putin. We we cannot go back to a Cold War. We absolutely can't allow it. Uh, President uh, Bush basically uh, saw the betrayal of the United States by Russia in his, uh, if not in his first term, and certainly in his second term. And he did, he refused to say anything, uh, negative about, uh, uh, President, uh, Vladimir Putin and now Prime Minister Vladimir Putin. He refused to say that this KGB regime had already started a new Cold War. Um, and of course we turned a blind eye and now we've got leaders of the United States Senate and the president, uh, the new president who want uh, basically, a effective nuclear, uh, unilateral nuclear disarmament in this country, as our nuclear deterrent is rapidly deteriorating and not being properly refunded, and we're losing nuclear capability, and we're headed toward nuclear inferiority, but nobody wants to hear the, that this is too negative. Oh, the Russians don't want to nuke us. Oh, the Russians don't want to take advantage of our, uh, of us if we become weak in the area of nuclear missiles. Oh, that's just rubbish. There's no more Cold War. They, why would they want to do it? Why do they want to hurt us? Why would China want to be allied with Russia to come and get us? And yet it was Anatoly Galitsyn who said that in the end it was going to be one clenched fist with Russia and China together, turning the strategic tables on the U.S. and smashing the U.S. superiority once and for all. Which is playing out. It is. But yeah, I mean, the whole, the whole topic of, of the, of the, this conflict between East and West is unthinkable and this moscow has obviously exploited that for its for strategic purposes and, and mass deception as much as possible mm-hmm. uh in, in terms of the nuclear build down i mean back in the 1980s when the soviets achieved um uh, nuclear superiority and the window of vulnerability opened up in terms of you know the total quantity of, of nuclear warheads in Russia relative to the United States. Um, they have obviously had to sit down because if you, if you take a look at Soviet military thinking, you know, these guys don't believe that nuclear war is an unwinnable and they don't believe in mutual destruction. This is a, a fallacy that the West invented, I guess, you know, to feel safe. But it is, in fact, had nothing to do with, with their strategization. Right. And... What the, what the Soviets had to say was, well, you know, if we did have a war at this juncture with these massive arsenals, at that point you're talking about 40,000 nuclear warheads in total or so, mm-hmm. uh, it would reap immense destruction. Their objective is simply uh, victory, is to, is to militarily um, defeat the United States and its allies, um, and wrest control of the world. You know, and to do that, the rational, they want to do that with, you know, a minimal amount of damage, just what's necessary to get the task done. Right. And so they had to see at that point that um, the most strategic way to, to, to go about taking out our nuclear weapons at that point was by waging peace rather than waging war. 
Yes. Okay, because through nuclear disarmament and through, you know, befriending the United States and engaging in international cooperation and then pursuing uh, um, very large-scale uh, nuclear arms reductions, they would, they would in effectively eliminate a large portion of our nuclear arsenal. Yes. And, and they're doing it through peace rather than war and therefore minimizing the amount of total damage. Absolutely, and they're also uh, economically intertwining themselves with us in ways that make powerful economic interests in this country uh, lobby against a renewal of, of defenses and Cold War attitudes. So that even, even while the uh, security leaders in Russia maintain a Cold War mentality and objectives, it is impossible now for America's political leadership to return to that kind of thinking because of the uh, uh, influence that the Russians now exert over powerful financial and economic interests. Plus, by opening up, they gained access to Western technology. Yes. And so all this military know-how, they've been able to harness in a fashion that would not have been possible if the, if the, if the Cold War stance was maintained. There was so much to be gained from pursuing peace rather than war, that's obviously the course of action that they pursued, but was, as we know, inherently deceptive. And what's more, it should have been obviously deceptive. But the lie, if you will, of, of, of this peace and this friendship was far too attractive, far too enticing. Mm -hmm. It was seductive. Political, political leaders and the leadership in the West to, to resist. It wasn't a matter of whether it was authentic or not. Yes. It was just, it was irresistible. Yeah, it was, it was palpably inauthentic, uh, but it was irresistible. It's interesting, I was just reading Claire, finishing up Claire Berlinsky's, uh, book on Margaret Thatcher. Um, and, uh, at the end of the book, she goes through, uh, in the, in some of the last chapters, uh, Margaret Thatcher's trip to Moscow and her, her 13 hour session of arguing with, uh, with uh, Gorbachev about uh, uh, about the faults of the Soviet Union, and and you know at one point uh, she thought she was going to be thrown out of the Kremlin and embarrassed because she was so hard with Gorbachev, but Gorbachev at one point just started to smile and 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 wink at her, so to speak, in the middle of this, and it never occurred to Claire Belinsky or any of the people around Margaret Thatcher why did the Soviet leader want to invite. Uh, uh, the British Prime Minister into the Kremlin to lecture him on what had been the mistakes of the Soviet Union, and I think it's quite obvious to me why this uh, this extraordinary meeting occurred, which did not seem to produce there, there was no agreement produced, uh, there was merely a, an exchange of views, and but what was produced was that the Russian side was able to to gauge what it was that the West wanted. In order to deliver that as, as a sort of a, okay, this was Margaret Thatcher's wish list that the Russians would admit where they were wrong. If the, if the Russian leadership went and turned around and said all the things that Margaret Thatcher had said was wrong with Russia, if they turned around and admitted those things, the West would, first the British Prime Minister would be flattered and would say, we've won the Cold War. And that was really the objective of the entire procedure. And that was what it was. It was a fishing expedition to find the mind of the British Prime Minister, find out what she would think would be a definition of Soviet capitulation, and therefore play that out later. 
Well, the beauty of the deception it was appealing to both the left and the right in the West. Yes, in fact, the, For the, the right that you claim. I'm sorry. Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. No, I couldn't believe it. I thought for sure. I read about this deception before the fall of the Berlin Wall, and I, I at first I thought, oh, nobody in the West would believe it because it's been published what they're about to do. And but then I had a chance in graduate school to meet people associated with the security services, and I I talked to them about it, and they were. They were completely stupid on this issue. And I thought, oh, my God, it'll work. If they pull this, everybody will believe it. And I thought, well, surely there'll be some conservative like William F. Buckley, a, a disciple of James Burnham, who'll come forward and say, no, we can't trust this. But no, when it came across, they were also eager to claim victory and to claim exoneration uh, that nobody questioned. Uh, no conservative major figure questioned. The, in fact, the only person that even remotely questioned it was was the elder President Bush, who was a bit cautious about it at first. But not even Reagan. Reagan was whole hog. Gorbachev is the real deal. You know, we can go, we can believe that this is authentic. And the discussion over, you know, basically. For, for political leadership, I mean, you can all, it's a win-win in terms of votes. Yeah. In terms of the, the people and, and, and popularity and, and, and mass mass thinking, of course they're going to go along. They don't have to worry about the specter of nuclear war anymore. I mean, it was just, it was, it was the, um, what is it, you know, um, it's uh, temptation, literally, in my mind, from the devil. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you, it had to be, of course, people are going to um, uh, go along with it. To have um, the vanity though, and the temerity to say you won the Cold War after you lost the Vietnam War, you gave up Africa to Marxism, basically. That you that you have had no effective victories. You've basically been checkmated or defeated everywhere around the world. That 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 more and more countries are becoming communist. In your own society, your professors and your kids are, you know, being taught communism in the schools uh, under under the the label later of political correctness. And yet, you still remain blind enough to say we won. Um, and in that sense, I'd like to touch upon something that um, you have not addressed, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, mm-hmm. with regard to, it is my belief that in terms of where this change came from, in terms of the, the rise of Gorbachev um, and the rise of, of those around him from the intelligence services, uh, that, that brought about Glasnost and Perestroika and the collapse of the Soviet Union, everything that, that has, has come to this day. Um, it's my belief that that was actually Russian nationalists gaining the upper hand in terms of Kremlin um, elite. And these nationalists actually did want to do away with communism, okay? Mm-hmm. And they wanted to replace it with orthodoxy. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, I've heard it. I I don't believe it, uh, and I don't believe it because I've I've seen with my own eyes. I saw uh, what Putin said when he was on Larry King, and Larry King asked him about the cross he was wearing, and I happen to know from my friends who are priests in the uh, serving in the Russian Orthodox Church abroad that the Church in Russia, the Orthodox Church in Russia, is completely at the top, controlled by KGB agents. And Precisely. that uh, that it is a it is a creature of the of the Kremlin, and it is the servant of the Kremlin, and it has as a church it has no authenticity, 
Uh, and in That's fact, right. it's a it's a shameful disgrace that the Russian Orthodox Church uh, abroad has uh, reunified with the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, it has basically allowed itself now to become contaminated by the the agent networks within the Russian Orthodox Church. Now can colonize the Russian Orthodox Church abroad if they hadn't already infiltrated it from the diaspora after the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is probably part of what contributed to it. But there's there's a there's a massive failure to grasp the degree to which the KGB method uh, of infiltrating and controlling through agents of influence is uh, is massively successful in every, uh, not only in, in Christianity and Orthodoxy, in the Protestant churches, in, in Buddhism, and in, 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 in Islam. They've, they've mm-hmm. penetrated everywhere on all sides because we have to remember that the Russian Empire had Buddhists, Muslims, and Christians in it. And these were then... Uh, able to form beachheads in Buddhist, Muslim, and Christian communities outside of Russia after the Bolsheviks took power. I, I don't disagree with anything that you said, um, but what I'm what I'm basically arguing, uh, and you can gather information from my my website on this, mm-hmm. spiritoftruth.org, is that that in a, that what you have is communism, the former communists, the KGB, the Intelligence elite in, in the Kremlin are hijacking Christianity. Oh, they they they, you, they use it. Yeah, the the KGB. In fact, Stalin used it. He opened the churches in uh, after Germany invaded Russia. But what I would say, what I would caution is, is that uh, the the leaders of this are not Christians. They don't really believe in Christian uh, Orthodox Church. They're merely using it as an instrument for infiltrating other, uh, ec- you know, through ecumenism, mm-hmm. other Christian organizations and uh, painting themselves in a way that, that makes nationalists follow their banner. But uh, did you see uh, Putin when he was on Larry King Live and Larry King asked him about the, the cross he was wearing? No, I did not. I'll, I'll relate it uh, to you. Putin uh, was wearing the cross, and, and so Larry King wanted to find out if Putin was a Christian. He says, Gee, you're wearing a cross, so please tell me about your beliefs. You know, do you believe in God? And Putin was bewildered. He didn't want to answer. And he says, well, well, let me make it more clear, plain. Do you, are you a man of faith? And finally, after resisting answering the question, Putin said, I believe in the power of man. That was his Interesting. answer. Which and is, I by the way... That is exactly, precisely correct. Yeah, it's a communist... their true mentality. Yeah, that is a communist answer. That's a Bolshevik answer. I believe in the power of man. That's the answer Lenin would have given. It's the answer Stalin would have given. And it's and, and every other uh, uh, communist leader would give. But... Uh, let me... Yeah, Can I provide ahead. you some quotes from Gorbachev? Sure. This is from his book, Memoirs. Communist ideology in its pure form is akin to Christianity. Its main ideas are the brotherhood of all peoples, irrespective of their nationality, justice and equality, peace and an end to all hostility between peoples. Okay, and this is from uh, USA Today in October 96. The socialist tradition goes back to Jesus Christ, not Karl Marx. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, you know, in fact, I will, if you like, there's an article. Are you familiar with the website? Jeez, um, what's it called? Globalresearch.ca. No, I don't think so. It's basically it's a leftist outlet. Mm-hmm. It's literally run um, by um, left-wing communists out of Canada. Hmm. And uh, an article came out 
um, back in September about the uh, crash of Western capitalist civilization. And uh, and so I was reading through it, and, and the author, um, Richard Cook, who's just one of the many um, these people are, are uh, leftists. I, can't, I don't know if they're actually agents of, of, of Moscow, but they certainly are serving their purposes. Mm-hmm. And he uh, wrote something very interesting that very few people are familiar with. And it was something that struck me because I'm one of the few people that is familiar with this. Mm-hmm. He said that Putin is heir to an ethical movement of patriots who began in the 1970s to take back Russia from within. It started with a base of operations within the KGB in the Orthodox Church, led to Gorbachev's, Gorbachev's glasnost in the 1980s, and culminated in the Second Russian Revolution of 1991. At that point, the Western financiers gleefully rushed in to support an assault from the Russian oligarchs who were looting Russia of everything it owned. And then it basically goes on to explain how, how um, Putin and, and company came back and, 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 and took back Russia. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, there's an interesting um, thing uh, that should be uh, tagged onto this, which w- could could be called the sociology of uh, communism uh, in its development. And there was a statement that Adolf Hitler made, a very perceptive per- uh, statement that he made back before World War II, and he said that um, that we in Germany are not going to become Bolshevists. Rather, the Bolshevists are going to become national socialists. And he said, this is an inevitable development. And, of course, Hitler was a person who initially attempted to join the Communist Party of Germany, was rejected and formed his, you know, formed his own movement, basically, uh, national socialism. And if we look at all the communist countries, whether it's Cuba or China or Vietnam or North Korea or Russia, we find that communism has had a tendency to become national socialism. Uh, in the sense that uh, very few people are motivated by Marxism-Leninism authentically. That people are tribal, they have national sentiments, they don't have Bolshevik sentiments. Uh, there's too few people who have truly revolutionary fervor to uh, keep uh, the Soviet power or Chinese power uh, you know, strong. So they have to use nationalism in all these countries. Stalin realized he couldn't beat Hitler unless he went to nationalism. And that's why they called the war against Hitler the Great Patriotic War. They didn't call it the the World Revolution, which they'd hoped to call it, because people weren't willing to fight for communism, but they would fight for Mother Russia. And I think that this understanding, which, which, which Joe Stalin uh, learned uh, as a very hard lesson, has been absorbed by the communist parties around the world. And what we see now, whether it's in Yugoslavia or Russia or China or, or, uh, uh, or even in, uh, in South America now, is a red-brown alliance, effectively, an alliance between uh, nationalists and socialists to, um, to build a new kind of power. Uh, a, a sort of Nazi kind of structure, a, a, a sort of totalitarianism much closer to what Hitler had developed than what existed under Stalin. Would you, would you agree with that? Correct. In fact, you know, the ideology, the ideological front is almost irrelevant. Obviously, what, what we're talking about here in terms of these regimes are totalitarian dictatorships. Mm-hmm. That's what they're all about. They're yeah. all about and, power. And, 
and control. And control. And nationalism is just a tool. And ideology itself, I mean, Lenin said there is no communist ideology. You know, communism is the scientific management of human affairs. So there, so ideology is just a tool used to manage, you know, stupid people who need to be managed. And that's basically what it amounts to. And, and yes, exactly right. Um, but now, now the question is, uh, you know, I remember I had this discussion with a Russian military defector. And he said that, uh, you know, Galitzin's right, there was a plan, but the plan broke down in the sense that uh, they realized that nobody believed, really, hardly anyone believed in Marxism-Leninism in the middle and lower levels of the Communist Party and the uh, administration. So to make the country work, they had to, uh, they couldn't bring communism back. They had to rely on national socialism to uh, to remake Russia. And this was a major kink in their plans. And I asked them, I said, well, does that mean that they're no longer out to destroy the United States? He goes, oh, no, they still want to do that. They're just, now they're just not relying. They're not going back to old-style Stalinists or Marxist-Leninist ideology to do it. They've, they've had to go this other route. They've had to go this and national that's socialist route. And that's exactly what I'm saying in terms of the new route that they are going mm-hmm. has to do with Orthodox Christianity. And the return to pre pre communist Russia with Tsarist Russia with the um where the power uh is is rooted in the church and the Kremlin, uh and the political leader. In fact that's what the double headed eagle, which is the emblem of Russia, state emblem for Russia, is all about. It shows the power of the patriarch and the power of the Tsar. And that combined power, that church state power, is exact they're going basically Back to, to tyrannical theocracy. Well, of okay. course, very few people in Russia actually believe in Christianity, so I don't, I don't quite understand that. That Christianity in Russia is a, is the prospect of a of a single digit percent of the population, mostly uh, babushkas, you know, older women. Purported, purportedly, no longer. Purportedly, now like seventy percent of Russians uh, belong to the Orthodox Church, and that Russia has been. Basically, eliminating all competing churches, saying everybody, the only church that's going to be permitted is the Orthodox Church. So you think that there's a campaign to actually rejuvenate Russian Orthodoxy? Oh, I know so. In fact, you're talking in terms of Galitzin's predictions. There was another author, and and I'm about the only person who's who's really focused upon his work, mm-hmm. named Alexander Yanov, who wrote a book in 1987 called The Russian Challenge in the Year 2000. And what he spelled out in that book was the rise of the Russian right based upon what he called the Russian idea. And I'll read you a quote from one of the the popular authors amongst the Russian nationalists and the, mm-hmm. the Russian right that expresses their thinking. If we presume the coming transformation of the Communist Party into the Russian Orthodox Party of the Soviet Union, we would obtain truly the ideal state one which would fulfill the historical destiny of the Russian people. It is a question of the orthodoxization of the entire world. And here's another one. Um, the messianic significance of Russia in relation to the West is beyond doubt. Slavophilism alone can still save the West from parliamentarism, unbelief, and dynamite. And this is the Russian right. And what they're thinking was, was that, first off, it's rapidly anti-Semitic, okay? They, if you will, blame uh, the Jews for the murder of Jesus and want to execute punishment accordingly. And as part of this this um, this belief system and this mentality, they saw communism 
as a consequence of a Jewish conspiracy. That, in fact, if you take a look at Marx and, and, and a lot of the, the early um, uh, communist revolutionaries in Russia, they were of Jewish or Jewish descent. And that, that um, literally overthrowing communism was the objective of these Russian nationalists. So in that sense, was, as this movement was coming to power, it was a great opportunity because the Russian nationalists wanted the same thing that the American right wanted. That is to get rid of communism. Okay? It's just that the West wanted to see communism go away to open up for a Western-style democracy. But this is not what their object, the objective of Russian nationalism, the Russian right, has been or is. Their okay. objective has been to replace communism with this orthodox totalitarian dictatorship. And if you take a look at when the Soviet Union collapsed, I mean, literally from 1991 on, after the coup and the, and the, and the collapse of the Soviet Union, immediately the Kremlin started spending billions upon billions of purportedly scarce rubles to rebuild and restore Orthodox churches. And why is the Russian government investing huge sums rebuilding churches? This is a former atheistic communist dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Um, let me uh, uh, break here uh, at the end of part one and let us do part two. This is Jay Adams on the uh, jrnyquist.com podcast for Tuesday, January 27th.